Millions of people are going hungry across the UK right now. Food banks are doing everything they can, but they need more help. Join Banquet's mission to tackle food poverty and get food banks across the UK what they need. One simple donation can make a huge difference to a family in poverty. To donate now, just go to www.spectator.co.uk forward slash donate. The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American politics and life. My name is Freddie Gray. I'm the deputy editor of The Spectator. I'm delighted to be joined by my friend, a Spectator World columnist and the editor of Modern Age, Daniel McCarthy. And we're going to be asking, can Donald Trump win in 2024? Now, Dan, last night, Donald Trump delivered the announcement that everybody was expecting, that he is going to run in 2024. And there's been a lot of sort of snarking and harumphing about his chances. But you wrote an interesting piece for The Spectator yesterday saying that you didn't think the midterms were a repudiation of Trump and suggesting, I think, that he has a pretty good shot, certainly at the nomination in 2024 and perhaps at winning the White House again. Do you actually think he's got a good shot? He certainly has a shot. Whether it's a good shot or not depends on, for example, how you evaluate his chances from 2016, which, of course, he succeeded in winning the White House that year. But uh, going into 2016, everyone thought, well, Donald Trump doesn't have a shot. Hillary Clinton is obviously going to be elected president in November. And Trump got the Republican nomination. But even after he got the nomination, a lot of Republicans, all the consultants, a lot of the existing office holders in, in the Republican Party, they all thought this is a disaster. Of course, Trump is going to lose. And then, you know, the question just becomes what happens to the Trump movement after he loses in November? Then, of course, he actually won. Then you look at uh, the 2020 election. And even though you had a very large popular vote against Donald Trump that year, if you look at the margin by which Trump lost in the key states that would have given him the electoral college votes that he needed in order to become president again, places like Georgia and Arizona, it was only about uh, 45,000 votes short of what he needed to get. So if he had gotten about 45,000 more votes split between those two states, he would have been reelected as president in 2020. And of course, in 2020, that was at the height of the COVID pandemic. Donald Trump was running on his economic success, which in 2020 seemed to have been obliterated by the COVID recession. So I think in 2020, Donald Trump was actually in much worse shape to run for reelection and to win than he was to run the first time in 2016. And he may well be better positioned in 2024 than he was in 2020. So Donald Trump you know, is in a, a position where it's a gamble just like it was in 2016, but the math is actually not terrible. It, it's quite possible that he could win. Uh, if we look at the midterm elections that happened last week, it was basically a maintaining election. The voting public decided to reelect incumbents of all political stripes. That included, you know, populist incumbents, right-wing Republican incumbents like Ron DeSantis in Florida. It included moderate Republicans like Brian Kemp, the governor of Georgia, and Mike DeWine, the governor of Ohio. And it also included Democrats like, you know, Kathy Hochul, the governor of New York, Gretchen Whitmer, the governor of Michigan. 
Where we did see changes, however, in the 2022 midterm elections, they were changes slightly shifting to the right. So you had, for example, the fact that Republicans are going to control the House of Representatives, albeit by a very narrow margin. And you also had the election of a person like J.D. Vance, who's very much you know, running as a next generation kind of Trumpian populist candidate. He got elected to the United States Senate in Ohio, and he's only 38 years old. So there's a very bright future for him. And then similarly, uh, candidates who fell short, people like uh, Blake Masters, who's even younger, who's 36 years old and was running for the Senate in Arizona, he came within five points of unseating an incumbent senator in a year that was generally very good for incumbents. I think that is a remarkable performance. And if you saw you know, any other kind of candidate do that well, the narrative would not be, oh, look, this person is a failure and was picked by Donald Trump and therefore you know, should be dismissed. If this were a candidate picked by Bernie Sanders or AOC or any number of other characters in American politics, the reaction would be, oh, my gosh, this is a first-time candidate, 36 years old, came within five points of knocking off an incumbent. This is a revolutionary change in American politics, even if the guy didn't actually win the election and get to the Senate. So I think there's actually quite a bit of momentum still in the Trump movement. It, you know, it obviously did very, very well in the Republican primaries during the election season. And then uh, it did better than people would, would guess during the general election, you know, just on November 8th. Well, let, let me put to you the sort of the counter argument, because that's what everybody seems to be talking about at the moment, which is that you could well argue that Trump 2016 was a freak. He was up against Hillary Clinton in a year where globally it was a sort of gonzo populist year and that at every election since the Republican Party has failed in one way or another in 2018 in the midterms, it lost the House quite significantly. In 2020, he lost the presidency. In 2022, the Republican Party underperformed, although I take your point that they did actually win the House and, and the results weren't quite as bad as some people made out. But, I mean, the overall point would be Trump's win in 2016 was freakish. And ever since at the ballot at the national level, he has fallen short for the simple reason that the majority of Americans don't like him and that his job approval ratings have never really got very high. Sure. Well, of course, uh, Joe Biden's job approval ratings have not gotten very high either. If you ask yourself, which was the more freakish election, 2016, where the country was basically in a normal condition, or 2020, when the country was in the midst of, you know, the outbreak of COVID and, you know, the attendant economic dislocation, everyone was, you know, stuck in their own homes. Donald Trump couldn't go out and hold rallies. Joe Biden was campaigning from his basement. Which is the more freakish year? Is it 2020 or 2016? It seems to me that, you know, 2020 is an anomaly in American politics. 2016 might have been an anomaly, too, but that's the thesis that's going to be tested in 2024. The country is narrowly divided. You have, you know, obviously an electoral system where the way you win the presidency is by winning the states, and you have to win the requisite number of electoral votes in the states. But the question that Donald Trump is going to face in 2024 is, can he indeed win places like Arizona and Georgia? which if he can't, then the Republicans really are sunk. Can he win a place like Pennsylvania, which he won in uh, 2016 and was really, you know, the keystone. I mean, it's called the Keystone State, and it was, in fact, you know, a keystone to his victory. Donald Trump was very effective in 2016 at getting, you know, people who had voted for Barack Obama twice to vote for him and to win votes in the Rust Belt, which was absolutely critical. I think in 2020, Donald Trump didn't do a very good job of appealing to those voters, and the results in the election that year demonstrated that. Finally, I wanted to mention... You know, people point to the 2018 midterm elections and say, oh, Donald Trump was obviously a failure because the Republicans lost control of the House of Representatives and the Senate that year. But actually, Donald Trump and the Republicans lost fewer seats 
in the House of Representatives in 2018 than Barack Obama lost in 2010. And they lost fewer Senate seats than Barack Obama lost in 2014. Presidents traditionally do quite poorly in midterms, not this past midterm, but you know, historically that's the norm. And Donald Trump's you know, midterm defeats, you know, in fact, they were smaller than the midterm defeats of Barack Obama and actually of Bill Clinton as well. So think back to uh, the 1994 midterm elections, you know, basically almost 30 years ago now, the magnitude of the Democratic defeats that year, which gave control of the House of Representatives and the Senate as well, to Republicans in the case of the House the first time in 40 years. This was the Gingrich Revolution in 1994. Bill Clinton lost far more seats in the House of Representatives than Donald Trump lost in 2018. And yet nobody looks back and says, aha, Barack Obama and Bill Clinton were failures because of these midterm setbacks. So I think there's a double standard here that basically, you know, Donald Trump is not being compared accurately to his predecessors. Instead, you know, you just have this narrative, which again, from the very beginning back in 2016, had always said Donald Trump can never, ever possibly win. In 2016, he proved that to be false. What I was quite struck by watching the speech this morning was that he is still talking about exactly the same things that he was talking about in 2016. And I would agree with what I think you would say, which is that those are effective electoral points. It's effective electoral messaging. But the world has changed in the sense that Donald Trump is not for the world. Donald Trump is not the same person he was in 2015 and 16. He's not this non-politics outsider. He is in many ways the Republican machine. And Republican voters are still very unhappy with their party. They're not necessarily unhappy with Trump, but they are looking for, it seems, uh, a lot of people say they are anyway, they are looking for new leadership. And so Trump, as the sort of front runner, he's always the front runner in the polls, I accept, but as the sort of establishment candidate in a way, is in a position of weakness. Well, I don't think he's the establishment candidate for the simple reason that the establishment is doing everything it possibly can to stop him right now. You see, you know, conservative uh, media outlets, traditional magazines and other places, you know, the New York Post, which is Donald Trump's hometown newspaper, all of them are attacking Donald Trump quite vociferously. If you look at Republican consultants, they are all much more favorable towards Ron DeSantis than they are to Donald Trump. And frankly, all of this reminds me again exactly of 2016. And I don't want to say that, you know, that's a historical moment, which is certainly going to be repeated. But again, back in 2016, all of these same forces aligned against Donald Trump. All of them said, you know, with absolutely serene confidence that Donald Trump was going to be a surefire loser. And they were the ones that were wrong. And frankly, I mean, the extent to which these institutions, these Republican consultants and some of the institutional conservative movement, the extent to which they have been responsible for a lot of the policy missteps and failures of the conservative movement and the Republican Party over the last 20 years is, uh, frankly, one of the strongest possible endorsements of Donald Trump again in 2024. If they don't like him, then he probably has you know, the potential to do something right. Having said that, I do think you're correct that you know, Trump doesn't have the freshness and the you know, sort of realm of possibility that he had in 2016. At this point, the Trump brand is very well defined. It has its supporters and it has its you know, detractors. And a lot of people who wanted to give Trump a chance back in 2016 might be less willing to give him a chance in 2024. However, you know, because Trump still has such a significant base of support within the Republican Party, it's very likely that he's going to, uh, you know, get the nomination anyway, in which case people who are reluctant Trump supporters and would really prefer to have a next generation leader may be stuck having to say, well, look, it's either Trump or it's, or it's nobody, or it's the Democrat. Well, let's talk about it within the context of the nomination. I suppose another argument against why Trump might not win the nomination is that in 2016, he was up against a wide field of candidates that helped him. 
and that they had not learned the lessons that Trump then taught them of the 2010s, and that now he will probably be up against possibly a narrower field, but certainly a field of candidates led probably, we don't know, but by Ron DeSantis, who is very much somebody who has absorbed and adapted to Trumpism and is therefore a more formidable opponent than he would have faced in 2015-2016. That's possibly correct, but then the other side to that is if you're running in a field which is defined by Trumpism, not necessarily just by Trump, but by all the changes that he's brought to the Republican Party, the question is, if you want Trumpism, are you more likely to vote for someone else or for the man whose name is actually the name of your philosophy at this point? And I think this is going to be a challenge for someone like Ron DeSantis or any other contender, because they're damned if they do and they're damned if they don't. If they run to you know, compete with Trump on Trump's own issues, they're you know, sort of going up against the person who defines the brand, which is going to be difficult. If they run against Donald Trump, they run the risk of losing Trump supporters who are a large enough block that the Republican Party cannot afford to alienate them. So even if Ron DeSantis could get the nomination, he has to walk a tightrope where he has to be, on the one hand, quite Trumpian. He has to get those Trump voters to remain loyal to the Republican Party and to turn out in the general election for him. But he also has to, you know, try to define himself as a person who can do perhaps what Donald Trump could not do. And the Democrats, of course, are not going to let him do that. They're going to continually try to define whoever the, the Republican nominee is, whether that's Trump or DeSantis or someone else. The Democrats are going to define that nominee as being simply Donald Trump, either by another name or by his own name. Do you think the way to beat Donald Trump in the Republican primaries is to run to the right of him or perhaps sort of the, the sort of wackier right of him and be say he, you didn't get the wall built properly? You never really sorted out the crisis at the border. Also on vaccines, the vaccine program that you started led to the federal mandates and you didn't do enough to to stop it. And you were sort of soft on COVID as far as the Republican right is concerned. No, I think there's a pretty clear strategy which a right-wing candidate or potentially any other candidate could adopt against Donald Trump. And it's simply this. Let Donald Trump run a marathon and then you come in and run a sprint. So Trump has already declared his candidacy for the White House in 2024. Let him have the next five to six months and just see how he does running against himself or running a virtual race against Joe Biden. So we can look at what the poll numbers were telling us as of you know before the uh, midterms about Donald Trump's performance in a likely matchup with Joe Biden. And I think the polls tended to provide a kind of mixed verdict at that point. Uh, Trump was ahead in many of the polls, but you know not necessarily by a, a wide margin. And Joe Biden, I think, was ahead in other polls. If Donald Trump is doing worse in those polling matchups with Joe Biden five months from now, what's that going to tell us? It, it will tell us basically that you know Donald Trump, even after having several months of a campaign and trying to build up his momentum, has not been able to acquire momentum, that he's been running this marathon and he's getting winded and he's running out of juice. And at that point, I think if a new fresh Republican, Ron DeSantis or someone else, jumps into the race and says, well, you know, I can do what Donald Trump is not doing. I can actually, you know, get the poll numbers and get the excitement that Donald Trump is failing to generate. I think that's the easiest possible scenario for DeSantis or for any other candidate. And it does seem to me that, you know, DeSantis, having just been reelected as governor of Florida, should focus on actually doing his job and governing for the next several months here. And the more that he's able to rack up an impressive record as governor of Florida, which he did, you know, during his first term, but the more that he's able to, you know, continue to expand his record, I think the stronger he will be. So in some ways, the timelines may work against Donald Trump. He's beginning so early that, you know, he's giving people a chance to, you know, get tired of him. He's giving people a chance to say that perhaps he doesn't have the kind of momentum he was able to create in 2016. And if that's the case, after six months or so, 
then I think there will be a very you know strong clamor for an alternative. Another point that people make about Ron DeSantis, and one of the reasons why people think he's been successful, is that he is he's able to exude a sense of competence and professionalism that not everybody would associate with Donald Trump. And then if you look at someone like J.D. Vance, even though he's a rather different figure, he also exuded a sort of intelligence and a kind of maturity, perhaps, that Trump didn't exude. And then if you look at other candidates all over the midterms, the wackier, more celebrity, more televisual candidates didn't seem to win. And the more grown up ones, if you like, did. Is that a dynamic that's going to work against Trump, if indeed that dynamic is real? Well, the flip side of that is just whether these more traditional kinds of politicians, people who are focused on not just their, you know, sort of uh, undisciplined statements that you get with Donald Trump, but who, you know, have a much greater degree of discipline, both in terms of pursuing government itself and also in the way they campaign. The question is whether they have the same sort of magic that Donald Trump has. So Donald Trump is someone who was able to, you know, in some ways perform miracles as a candidate precisely because he would hold these rallies, he would go to places no Republican had gone to, and voters really responded to that. They found him to be, you know, a kind of unique figure, someone they connected with emotionally. Now, the question is, if you have someone like Ron DeSantis, will he be able to do the same thing, especially in Rust Belt states that may be quite different culturally from, you know, places uh, like Florida? Florida is, you know, a place where a lot of Americans retire to. It's a state that, you know, has a very high Hispanic element, It's a state that has a very entrepreneurial character. I think it's been number one, in fact, in the rankings of uh, freedom in the 50 states that my friend Will Ruger has uh, compiled over the last five or 10 years. So Florida is, you know, in some ways a very Reaganite state, actually. And the fact that Ron DeSantis is able to sort of balance Reaganism with Trumpism has made him a very, very effective politician. And that may yet be a formula that works very well across the nation as a whole. However, it may not be. It may be something that falls short in the Rust Belt and, you know, if that's the case, then again, Republicans would be in a very tough spot going into the 2024 election. So certainly I think there are, you know, many virtues to a more disciplined approach. And I hope Donald Trump himself will be more disciplined both about how he campaigns and if he wins, how he governs. But I also think that there's something to be said for the flexibility, the improvisatorial creativity that uh, characterizes Donald Trump. And frankly, I mean, that's one of the hazards of American politics is that you wind up with candidates who are very scripted who are always doing the same thing, who are very predictable, very dull. And sometimes that's what people want, but oftentimes people want something that is going to be a little livelier, a little more engaging. I do fear, by the way, one one weakness that Ron DeSantis has, and I would advise him to kind of work on this, is that he's not a happy warrior. Well, I've you know been to speeches where the speech has been extremely well received by all the conservatives in the room. I'm thinking in particular of his uh, remarks at the National Conservatism Conference in Miami earlier this year. That was an absolute barnstormer, really, you know, home run success. But the one thing I left, you know, that speech thinking about was it wasn't really humorous. There weren't really jokes. There wasn't really a sense that, you know, that Ron DeSantis would be a fun guy to have a beer with. And I kept thinking to myself, what the Democrats are going to do is present this guy as just a typical angry Republican, that he's someone who, you know, wants to beat up Disney, he wants to beat up transsexuals, he wants to beat up, you know, all sorts of people, and that he's not someone who, you know, really has uh, a sense of kindness and warmth or humor, for that matter. And, you know, I think DeSantis would do well to kind of capture that element of Ronald Reagan, that affability. And I think Donald Trump, in a a strange way, because, of course, all the major media narrative about Trump is that Trump is, you know, this ghastly, always aggressive and offensive individual. But, of course, if you actually watch these Trump rallies, some of it is self-deprecating humor. Some of it is, you know, 
there's a lot of, of joking. There's a lot of, there's a feel good element to it as well as the hostility that, you know, all of his opponents pick up on. Can you give us a sense of the intellectual currents of the American right at the moment, bearing in mind that quite a lot of this audience are British and won't be very familiar with it? I suppose I'll give a sort of probably completely wrong warm up to this question, which is that in 2016, it seemed to me that paleoconservatism, if you like, the Pat Buchanan mindset on the American right, which had always been there, had been popular and interesting at times, was suddenly sort of fused with this fascinatingly mad man who was Donald Trump and that that was quite a powerful force and and together it kind of came together with other things. I think West Coast Straussianism is something you talk about a lot. What are the dominant currents now on the American right and would they favour DeSantis or would they favour Donald Trump? There's a bit of a divide among conservative intellectuals over Donald Trump. So certainly old guard, George W. Bush era conservative intellectuals, people who favoured free trade, a relatively, you know, accommodating immigration policy and a very vigorous foreign policy, uh, including things like the Iraq war. All of those conservative intellectuals are anti-Trump and have been anti-Trump all along. And in some cases, they were willing to kind of hold their noses and go along with Trump while he was president. But right now, you know, they've quite explicitly you know, come out to oppose Donald Trump, as they did in 2016 as well. Now, that is very much an old guard that is losing momentum. The new guard which comes in various philosophical varieties. And you've alluded to a couple of them. There's the so-called West Coast Straussians, people at the Claremont Institute, for example. There are you know, people who look to Pat Buchanan as kind of a uh, guide star of their politics, people who might be called paleoconservatives. There are various factions like that which have you know, embraced Donald Trump's agenda. And some of them now have a mixed verdict on Donald Trump himself. So someone like Ann Coulter, for example, who is a very you know, outspoken, uh, you know, she's almost the female Tucker Carlson, right? She's She's been a right-wing journalist for a very long time, very, you know, sort of strongly critical of U.S. immigration policy. She turned against Donald Trump long before DeSantis even appeared on the horizon. And uh, that's because, you know, Ann Coulter thinks that Donald Trump fell short as president. He, he didn't actually deliver very much of what he had promised. So you have a number of intellectuals like that who are quite right-wing, who have been unhappy with Donald Trump for some time and are quite happy to look to someone like DeSantis as an alternative. On the other hand, there are others who think that Donald Trump, for all of his shortcomings, nevertheless is someone whose instincts are still quite reliable, and that co-opting Donald Trump is something that uh, has proved impossible for the establishment to do, that Donald Trump is always going to have, you know, an impulse to restrict immigration, that Donald Trump is always going to look askance at free trade agreements, and Donald Trump is always going to be reluctant to get us into foreign policy conflicts. These conservatives say, well, we would rather have someone that we trust, someone whose instincts are right, like Donald Trump, than someone who may be a little bit of an unknown quantity with you know, Ron DeSantis or some of the other potential candidates out there who sometimes say the right things and who often say the right things, but who you know, haven't yet proven to be quite as willing to take the slings and arrows that Donald Trump took in order to stake out some of these positions that go against the conservative intellectual establishment. Let's go with the assumption that Trump beats DeSantis for nomination or or just wins the nomination against whoever and look ahead to a possible 2024 matchup against quite possibly, I'd say, majority, possibly Joe Biden. I'd be interested to know what you think about that. So Trump-Biden 2024, the big swing group that people talk about in American politics is suburban voters, often suburban women, and the talk in the mid before the midterms that suburban women were breaking heavily towards the republicans because of the economy and i think that happened to a certain extent but not 
enough for the Republicans to do as well as they were hoping to do. I put it to you that Trump will never be able to win significant majorities among key suburban swing voter groups. Am I wrong? Well, I think he's always going to run behind where he would like to be and where Republicans would like to be with suburban women voters. In the 2022 midterms, we saw the major divisions, the things that really saved the Democrats from this uh, red wave or red tsunami that was expected, was the fact that unmarried women voted very heavily for the Democratic Party. And also, you know, uh, there's an educational divide as well, where more educated voters tend to be more Democratic-leaning, and college-educated women in particular tend to be very Democratic-leaning. Now, this, I think, is a fundamental you know, challenge that any Republican nominee is going to face in 2024. And you're correct that Donald Trump is perhaps uniquely you know, offensive to that demographic of voters. That said, it seems to me that in 2022 and just looking ahead to 2024, that Donald Trump is probably not the major factor, not the, the greatest factor in the way in which that voting bloc swung in this past midterm election or is likely to swing in 2024. Unmarried women and college-educated women, they are much more actualized, much more, you know, sort of motivated by uh, the Dobbs decision than other demographics of voters are. So married women, unmarried men, and married men, you know, I think they are less likely to vote on abortion rights, whereas unmarried women and college-educated women, this is something that proved to be, you know, significant to them. And we saw not only with the elections for Congress, but also a number of referendums that were put on the ballot in a number of states during the midterms. Some of these referenda were to restrict abortion. Some of these referenda were to enshrine abortion rights in state law. And in general, the abortion rights side won both of those kinds of battles. They were able to defeat the restrictions and they were able to succeed in passing attempts to codify abortion rights in state laws and in state constitutions. Now, Republicans have every reason to celebrate the Dobbs decision and the fact that, you know, Roe v. Wade has been overturned and this is now an issue that has gone back to the states. And of course, this is actually one of Donald Trump's great achievements because Donald Trump appointed the Supreme Court justices who, you know, provided the decisive margin on that ruling and uh, delivered Dobbs. And in fact, I would even go so far as to say any more conventional Republican probably would not have done that. So think about someone like George W. Bush putting John Roberts on the Supreme Court. John Roberts, you know, would probably still have voted for changing the Roe regime, the Roe v. Wade abortion regime, but it would have been in a much more mild and constrained way, precisely because I think John Roberts is a kind of political calculator. He's someone who would look at this and say, well, if you completely throw out abortion rights, completely throw out Roe v. Wade, you're likely to have a major political disruption. And I think other justices that, you know, normal Republicans would appoint would have been less likely to overturn Roe completely. Whereas Donald Trump simply, you know, he was willing to say, well, if my coalition partners want a justice or a number of justices who will definitely overturn Roe v. Wade, then I'll give it to them because that's you know part of the negotiation. That's part of the bargain. They're part of my coalition, so I will give them what they want. So Donald Trump, you know, in, in some ways de- helped to deliver that victory, a victory conservatives have worked for over the course of nearly 40 years. But the consequences of that victory are going to be difficult for all Republicans going forward. And in 2024, I think that's especially going to be the case because the question will be, what kind of Supreme Court justices will Ron DeSantis or Trump or whomever nominate? And what will be the future of abortion rights you know, nationwide? And I think whoever the Democratic nominee is, whether it's Joe Biden or Gavin Newsom, the governor of California or someone else, that person is going to campaign very heavily on abortion rights, which again would be a change from what we saw in 2016 or in 2020. So if you had kind of nationwide referendum on abortion in 2024, that would be a very different campaign than we've seen 
really ever in American presidential politics. Let's stick on the, the abortion issue briefly, actually, even though it's slightly off topic from what we've been talking about. But I mean, a lot of pro-lifers, I believe, are quite disheartened now because it seems like Dobbs, the overturning of Roe v. Wade, has ended up being a defeat because it has turned the pro-abortion argument into something like the pro-life argument was in the 70s. It's mobilised a group against the Supreme Court. It's turned it into a winning issue for the Democrats, whereas it wasn't necessarily before. Are, are they wrong to think like that? Uh, your analysis is quite right. So while Roe v. Wade was the law of the land, this was something that you know conservatives, supporters of the right to life, were very unhappy about. And yet they were still able to actually enact very strong restrictions on abortion at the state level. And so abortion rates were dropping and the regulation on abortion was increasing throughout the last you know, 10 or 15 years while Roe was still standing. Now that Roe has fallen, the momentum seems to have shifted to the other side. And you're exactly right that precisely because the Supreme Court is not a democratic institution, it's an institution which you know, Americans say they have greater respect for the Supreme Court than they do for Congress or for the presidency or for other branches of American government. Nevertheless, because the Supreme Court, when it enters into controversial questions like abortion, is not a democratic institution and therefore is able to do things that, you know, upset opponents in a way that makes them feel disenfranchised, makes them feel not only have they lost an election, but rather they've lost something that wasn't an election. They've lost something where they didn't have a chance to express their own voice. Supreme Court rulings can wind up boomeranging and creating a popular movement in the opposite direction. And we're seeing that right now, I think, with abortion rights. That said, I don't think the pro-life movement should be despairing. What they need to do is to be patient. And this is what I would say to, you know, sort of Trump supporters, DeSantis supporters, right-wing populists, as well as to pro-lifers, that basically there are several indications that things are moving in the direction the right would like to go, but we may not be headed in that direction as quickly as many people would like. So again, I would actually say that the 2022 midterms actually saw, in terms of the different factions of American politics, more gains for the populist right than for other groups of American politics. And in terms of the pro-life movement, they faced immediate setbacks because they've tried to have, you know, very quick total bans on abortion or very strong anti-abortion regulations. And that's just not going to fly. What, what the pro-life movement needs to do is to spend a lot more time educating the public and, you know, sort of winning battles step by step, state by state, locality by locality. Instead, I think a lot of pro-lifers and, you know, people kind of misunderstand what it was that Roe actually did. But a lot of people, both pro-life and in favor of abortion rights, they thought that the fall of Roe immediately made abortion illegal everywhere. And so a lot of pro-lifers are simply disappointed that it turns out, no, it's not that easy. Whereas a lot of, you know, supporters of abortion rights, they're deluded too. And they think, oh, you know, abortion is going to be much harder to get in America now. When in fact, in most places, or certainly in the places that had the most abortions to begin with, it's just as available as ever before in Illinois and in New York State and in California. So, you know, what you're going to have for a time is going to be a patchwork where red states are more likely to have restrictions on abortions and uh, blue states will not have any restrictions whatsoever, most likely. And then the purple states, the places in the middle, and even some of the pink states, some of the less Republican but Republican leaning states, they too will probably have relatively liberal abortion laws. But that can change. You can make those pink states more red, I think, over time. Let's get back to Trump, who last night made quite an interesting point, I thought, in his speech, which is that he didn't think that American citizens were really feeling the pain of the damage that Biden was doing to the economy yet. And an interesting point you might add to that is that a thing that helped Biden drive out the vote in the midterms was his effective bribing of students 
with his student loan debt forgiveness program, which definitely seemed to help him among that demographic. So Trump's argument is that by 2024, people will really be feeling the pain of Bidenomics. And this depends on there being a double debt recession, which it looks like there may well be. But do you think that's a sensible gamble from Trump to say that in two years' time, people will resent Biden more than they do now? It's certainly a plausible scenario and one that would change a lot of the evaluations people are making of politics right now. So again, going into the 2022 midterm elections, people thought, well, Joe Biden is totally done. The Republicans are going to win very handily here. That didn't happen, of course. But the reason people were thinking that was because you, know, you had inflation, you've had rising crime. There have been a lot of reasons fundamentally to think that Joe Biden's administration was unpopular and there would be a reaction against it uh, in the congressional elections. Now, it seems to me what actually happened is that all these forces were felt, but in fact, the American people had the opposite of the reaction everyone had expected. Instead of taking risks and demanding change, the American people said, you know, this is such a, you know, sort of unstable environment economically, in terms of world affairs, in terms of abortion policy, all of this, that we want to just, you know, keep things on the track they're on right now and, and punt on making any kind of decision to go one way or the other. And again, I mean, the 2022 midterms were a very mixed verdict. So Republicans gained control of the House. Democrats appear to have gained, you know, depending on how the December runoff election in Georgia goes, Democrats will either have maintained their 50-50 balance in the Senate or they'll have gained 51 seats against the 49 for the Republicans. But either way, neither in the House nor in the Senate do you see a commanding margin in either direction. And uh, what that tells me is that actually the country is still very much undecided about which direction it wants to go. In two years' time, it's going to have to make a much bigger decision about which direction to go, because not only will control of Congress again be at stake, and of course, with such narrow margins in the House and in the Senate, both of those institutions will be in play again in 2024. They'll also have to make a decision about the presidency in 2024. So I think voters right now decide to be risk averse and just reelect incumbents and defer making a decision in the midst of you know all these crises that are going on. In 2024, regardless of whether the crises have resolved or become worse, the American people are going to have to make, I think, a more definitive decision about which way to go. The Trump movement in 2016 took states that had traditionally been Democrat, like Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and people are now saying, looking at 2024, that New York might be in play because the Republicans made pretty interesting gains there. Do you think a Trump 2024 president could end up taking New York and actually changing the electoral map even further in favour of the Republicans? No, I think New York is probably out of reach for the Republicans. Now, that said, if you do have, you know, a recession and, you know, an even larger economic crisis than we have right now, that will put other states into play. And I can see perhaps a state like New Jersey might be somewhat more likely than New York to go into the Republican column. I think New York is pretty solidly blue. But having said that, one of the lessons of this past midterm election was that even if you have a candidate who gets defeated and falls short, that candidate can have an effect in amplifying the efforts of other candidates within his state. So Lee Zeldin, who was the Republican nominee for governor in the state of New York, you know, he was expected to be a really serious contender against Kathy Hochul. Polling said that, you know, maybe he would have a long shot chance at actually winning that election. And it turns out he didn't. He fell short. But he actually had a significant effect in helping a number of Republican congressmen or congressional candidates in the state of New York to get over the finish line. And similarly, with uh, some of the uh, state level elections for the New York Assembly, that too was something where Lee Zeldin played a, a role simply because he mobilized a lot of Republicans in New York who otherwise would have stayed home and thought it was a hopeless gubernatorial battle. 
that was something we, we will see, I think, either way with Donald Trump in 2024. If he's the Republican nominee, an awful lot of Republicans will go to the polls because they believe in him. And even if Donald Trump doesn't get elected in 2024, he may very well have coattails that help other Republicans. And again, this was the verdict that people had in 2020 when you know everyone expected Donald Trump to lose in 2020. That was not a surprise. But everyone expected that the Republicans would also see a total blowout in Congress, that the Democrats would you know, make tremendous gains in the Senate and in the House of Representatives. And instead, Democrats actually lost seats in both chambers of Congress and were much weaker after the 2020 election than they had been going into it. That goes to show that you know Donald Trump was so successful at mobilizing red state voters, Republican voters, and for that matter, Republican voters in blue states, that uh, he was able to minimize the Democratic gains, in fact, you know, produce Democratic losses, and to maximize Republican turnouts at the congressional level. That's one of the things I think people have to keep in mind about American politics. Even though there's this tendency to make you know, the, um, the presidency the be-all and end-all of political efforts, really it's a long-term project of you know, sort of tilting the country one direction or the other in terms of the overall, not just governing class, but also the overall set of issues and policies that are going to be enacted. What Donald Trump is doing is, I think, comparable in a lot of ways to what Barry Goldwater did back in the 1960s. And Barry Goldwater, of course, lost the 1964 presidential election in a total landslide. And all of the pundits of that era, including a lot of moderate Republicans, they looked at Barry Goldwater's defeat and they said, well, that's it. This whole conservative project that got started with you know, National Review magazine and other things has now been completely destroyed, completely defeated. It's utterly hopeless, just as a lot of people are saying about Donald Trump right now. But of course, conservatives looked at Barry Goldwater and they said, wait a minute, this guy got many, many millions of votes. That's a floor, not a ceiling. We can build upon that and grow from there. And we can start to find you know, more people who want to respond to this message. And then that built a conservative movement that elected Ronald Reagan. Later on, it becomes corrupted and starts electing the Bushes. But it was a very effective movement for a very long time, even though it started with a defeat. It started with Barry Goldwater in 64. Donald Trump has had more success than that already. He's become president from 2017 to 2021. And then he um, you know, is also already the dominant figure in the Republican Party, both legislatively and also as a potential presidential contender again in 2024. So it seems to me that you know, that Trumpian force, whether it leads Donald Trump to win in November of 2024 or not, but that Trumpian force is still transforming American politics. That transformation continued during the midterms. And it's something that I think the populist Republican right would be well advised to take advantage of. And again, it's a question that goes beyond Donald Trump himself, but it's more about the forces that Donald Trump unleashed. And maybe Ron DeSantis will be more effective in the future at harnessing those forces. Maybe Donald Trump will be able to do it again, what he did in 2016. But either way, there are so many more levels to this battle, especially in terms of what's happening in Congress and what's happening in terms of the electorate and the Republican base and its preferences for the future. That is all incredibly fascinating, Dan. Thank you very much. Finally, I will ask you one question. I noticed last night I will ask you one more question, I should say. Finally, I will ask you one more question. I noticed last night that Trump did not really talk about the stolen election. He did not dwell on it. There was a couple of little quips about it, but it certainly wasn't a theme or or a substantial part of the speech. Do you think perhaps he has accepted what a lot of people, I think, around him have said for a long time, that harping on about the stolen election is not effective campaign politics? I would not make any predictions based on last night's remarks. So I think last night, you know, he probably was listening to advisors who told him to be, you know, as buttoned down as possible and as conventional as possible. The real test is going to be when Donald Trump is out on the campaign trail holding rallies. He's been holding rallies already. I think he's going to hold a lot more over the course of the next year. And the question then becomes, you know, if he's making a two hour speech, 
what does he get into, you know, after the 50 minute mark? And does he decide that he wants to talk about not only, you know, 2020, but also, you know, maybe Kerry Lake's election for governor in, in Arizona or any number of elections that, you know, were close calls in uh, 2022, but that the Republican wound up losing. So you could see Donald Trump in 2023 making much less of an issue of, you know, these close elections or not so close elections in the case of 2020 that Republicans lose and, you know, his, uh, you know, belief that these elections were unfair. Or on the other hand, you could see that become an even bigger issue. And, you know, I think a big part of it will be how Republican audiences, how Trump supporting audiences respond. And some of them might have a very, you know, sort of hungry appetite for relitigating either the 2022 elections or the 2020 election. That's a very high stakes thing. It's something I think his advisors, you know, they're conventionally wise to tell him to steer away from that stuff. And yet, you know, I think Donald Trump also recognizes that a lot of ordinary Republicans really resent these elections. They, I think there's, there's a lot of, you know, it gets translated into pure conspiracy theories of hacked voting machines and of, you know, ballots being dropped off, you know, illegally and whatnot. But there's, there's a genuine concern, which I would, you know, hope that more intellectual Republicans would latch onto, a genuine concern about, uh, you know, all of these new styles of voting that have been implemented over the last several years here, really, especially since 2020. So that includes uh, more mail voting, more early voting, voting before election day. It includes ranked choice voting, which has now, you know, been imposed on Alaska and elsewhere. And all of these changes to voting procedures seem to be advantageous for the Democrats. And I know there are studies which say, well, mail-in voting is not necessarily tilting things to one side or another, but I'm sort of suspicious of all of that. And it seems to me it's a very bad, you know, precedent for American elections. If you have people voting on different days when, you know, I mean, it's even possible that there are different candidates running on different days, right? Because think of someone like Michael Bloomberg, who dropped out of, you know, the Democratic nominating race after a point when many, many people had already cast, you know, early ballots or mail-in ballots for him. All sorts of chaos that happens if people are not voting on the same day in pretty much the same places for an election. It ceases to be an election and turns into simply an ongoing rolling opinion survey. And I think a rolling opinion survey is more prone and susceptible to media manipulation. Because, you know, if the media says, okay, here's the scandal of the day you should fixate on, I think people are vulnerable to saying, oh, yes, I'm shaken up about this latest report, you know, and therefore I'm going to cast my, you know, mail-in ballot about this today. Whereas on election day, they really have to take everything all together and say, okay, when I look back over the whole election campaign, what is my sum total, you know, response and reaction? And they're in the privacy of the voting booth and they get to, you know, be in the quiet of their own thoughts for a few minutes. Whereas, you know, when they're filling out a mail-in ballot, they can be, you know, have the, the TV on blaring MSNBC or Fox News or whatever. And I just think it's a, a much worse kind of, for civic institutional reasons, it's much worse to have people voting in, uh, you know, different time frames and using different modes. That said, it seems like, you know, there is an awful lot of momentum right now behind all of these newfangled voting projects. I think that is, you know, to blame for a lot of the increasing doubts that you see about the American electoral process. You see them on the right right now because the right, you know, lost the 2020 election and then you had, you know, disappointing results in 2022. But of course, this would be uh, felt even more on the left if the results turned out, you know, the other way. Here in Washington, D.C., you had shops boarded up, you know, basically fortified on Election Day in 2020. And it wasn't because they thought that MAGA country, you know, people like those who, uh, you know, supposedly attacked Juicy Smollett would go rampaging and marauding across Washington, D.C. And, and burning down buildings if Donald Trump won. No, they were prepared for, you know, riots like those we saw over George Floyd in 2020. They thought you would get more of that uh, with a Democratic defeat if Donald Trump won re-election in 2020. 
So I think this, this lack of faith in American electoral results is pervasive on both sides. And it really just depends on who wins and who loses. And I'd like to see more faith restored in our electoral process by having people actually vote in a more traditional way in the future. I agree with you there, Dan, very much. It's always great to talk to you. And you are, you've been more right about Donald Trump than anyone else I know. So thank you very much for coming on. Thanks, Freddie. Thank you very much for listening to that episode of Americano. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe. And if you really enjoyed it, please leave us a star rating, preferably five stars, and a review.